0: Hello and welcome to Classroom 101, the podcast on all things education, from best practice to the very worst. I'm Andy van a journalist turned teacher who created this podcast so that more educators could have access to the ideas and wisdom of our profession's greatest minds. In Classroom 101, we strive to improve education by calling out its least helpful terms, paradigms, systems or practices, suggesting better alternatives. Our guest this week is Laura McInerney, Laura is an education journalist and founder of the popular app, TeacherTap. Laura was once taken to court by the Department for Education, an intriguing case which we discuss a lot at the start of the show. By the time it ended, she was editor of the new and highly successful newspaper, Schools Week. Today, Laura is CEO of TeacherTap, while remaining an education columnist for The Guardian. Laura's story is a fascinating one, and her suggestions for Classroom 101 are all new and interesting too. So I hope you'll enjoy the chat as much as I did. So without further ado, let's get on with the show.
1: When education's in pretty bad shape, teachers are leaving planning escape. It's not enough time to teach the things you should. Time to banish education sins. you do it if you could. Time for Classroom one Time for Classroom 101 Time for Classroom 101 Budget slashing everywhere the government insists it cares Are we raising quality with all the endless scrutiny? If you're hating league tables in those sad, less able labels Time to save our education from self-imposed cremation Time for Classroom 101 Time for Classroom 101. Yeah,
2: it's time for every teacher's favourite
0: podcast. Classroom 101.
2: Classroom 101. Thanks for coming on. No worries.
0: How are you? Yeah, really well, thank you. I'm really glad to have you here on the podcast. There's so much to it. So, if you could take us through your journey to today, I'd be really interested.
2: Sure. So I I did Teach First in 2006. I was a citizenship teacher and unexpectedly, I absolutely loved teaching. I sort of thought I'd do it for two years and it would give me some really good skills, you know, presentation skills, dealing with sort of attitude teenagers, but actually I thoroughly loved everything and still love everything about teaching. I think being able to walk into a classroom full of 30 teenagers and get their attention and know that by the end of the day, they'll have learned something, you'll have learned something, is one of the greatest uses of time that human beings can have. Oh. So I loved it. Um, but I found myself in 2012 in this strange situation where I'd taken a step out just to study for what I thought would be a short period. And I had asked for some information about free schools, which didn't seem that controversial. It was just the application forms and decision rejection letters for people who were applying. You know, if you put a conservatory on your house, you have to apply. You have to put in open plans and you have to, you know, the decision will be open for everybody. So I didn't think I was asking for the Pentagon Papers. But I found myself in court two years later with the charge that I was vexatious under the Freedom of Information Act. And that was really a delay tactic at the time for the Department for Education, because the administration of the free schools in the first few years wasn't great. And for some reason, they seemed to think that this was a big secret, and they should hide the documents that proved it. I mean, we all knew it anyway. So eventually, several years later, when I got the documents, no one was surprised to find that it was a bit of a mess. But in the intervening period, I didn't go back to teaching in school, because that's quite difficult when you've got a court case against the Department for Education. And instead, Schools Week was starting up. So they asked me to come in and work for them, as did Alice Woolley, who is the education editor over at The Guardian. And she's just fantastic. And she saw this young female teacher who she wanted to get writing. And she gave me a column, which I'm immensely grateful for. So I did that for a few years and then two years ago started TeachTap, the new love of mine and Professor Becky Allen's life.
0: Mm. Wow. What, what it's I just really don't know where to start with that. <laughs> um, I I know from experience having been a journalist and having made FOI requests how defensive sometimes the receivers can be. Can I ask how you found out that you were into a a legal proceeding?
2: Sure. So I obviously sent off my request very naively, I think either by email or via a contact form. And then I was getting these letters back from the Department for Education, which had lots of legalese in them. So many different phrases that I didn't understand all about section this and section that. And for your listeners, the way the Freedom of Information Act works, essentially as taxpayers, we have access to everything that the government writes about or keep on record unless one of about 40 different rules apply. And only if one of those rules apply, can you not have the information? So of course, the department was writing back and saying this rule applies, and that rule applies. But I didn't know if that was true or not, because I didn't really understand what they meant. So I blogged quite a lot at the time, um, and Twitter was was in its early days. And there are these groups of people around the country, many of whom do very odd. Aud- Ordinary day-to-day jobs, often in information records, who got in touch and meet with each other and help people like me. And they really helped me um, appeal and go to the Information Commissioner's Office, which is free, and find out if the Department for Education were correct. The Information Commissioner's Office ruled in my favour and said very strongly this information should be released to the public. And at the time the department had 35 days to comply. Mm. Five minutes before those 35 days ran out. I still hadn't heard anything. And so I phoned the tribunal office on a suspicion that they might be putting in for a court case. And I was told that it had literally just arrived with five minutes to spare and that they would be asking not just for a paper tribunal, which is where you discuss your issues on paper and then a judge reviews the paperwork, but they would be asking for an oral hearing. So that would mean I would have to go to court and that the rule they were using for the first time ever in what had already been an 18 month process was that I was vexatious and so what would be discussed in that courtroom was my personal motives and personality and character.
0: Oh my goodness yeah well, and how, how old are you if you don't mind me asking at this time? I
2: was, Yeah I was probably 30, 31 maybe, 31.
0: Wow. What a thing to happen to you and your head must have been spinning and for them to do that at the last minute as well so without any warning.
2: And for the next six months, up until the court day, I hadn't realised that lawyers are paid a lot of money to try and make your life incredibly difficult and to throw you off. At the time as well, legal aid had been removed and still is removed for many people involved in tribunals on the basis that any individual should be able to represent themselves in court Now, this wasn't an employment tribunal or a disability tribunal. My husband wasn't being deported. My child wasn't being stopped from going to school. And so I thought, well, look, let's test this. Let's see if I can actually defend myself in a courtroom and I'll learn something about the tribunal system. And I have to say it was horrible. It was really very, very difficult. And on the day when the court case took place, I knew there were going to be three judges, all men. I knew there would be a barrister and solicitor for the Department for Education both men the information commissioner's office brought a barrister and solicitor also men and there was me and I knew if I turned up in ordinary dress I would look like the work experience girl and I thought if I go in there and dress all serious this is going to look ridiculous so I wore yellow and I wore six inch yellow heels. And that's why I still wear yellow jackets today, because when I stood up, I didn't want people to look over and see this scared 31 year old. I wanted them to see something that was about transparency, shining a light on the truth and know that I was absolutely deadly serious. So I still yellow a lot now because that's about its about saying this is the truth. It's about trying to help, wanted to help free schools get better. I wasn't trying to do anything
0: terrible. What courage you showed there. And what a way to approach it. Take us through it from there, if you don't mind.
2: There was supposed to be a two day court case and it actually ended up only being one day. Um, I I lost the case in quite unusual circumstances that required us to appeal it at a higher court, at which point they threw the whole thing out and we had to start again. And then the department said they were going to take me to court a third time a few weeks before the third court case where I knew a lot more by this point and was now the editor of Schools Week and was now a Guardian columnist I had put in a list of witnesses that I wanted to call to the stand who were civil servants and I think I put that in on the Wednesday and on the Friday got a message to tell me that actually I could have the documents after all.
0: Oh how how long then was it from first you making the FOI request to them accepting to actually give Uh, you the info?
2: It was September 2012 when I put the request in and it was February 2016 when it ended.
0: Wow, three and a half years it took yeah, three and a half years. to get that yeah. information and then what you were put through to get it. You must feel incredibly proud. Tell me how you would feel looking back, because I can guess there might be some anger, there might be some pride. I don't know.
2: Unfortunately, and I have written about this. Before I also lost a very beloved family member the same weekend as the court case was won. Oh my goodness, okay. and uh, she'd been ill for about the same period of time as this had been going on. And that's not the Department for Education's fault, to be clear to, <laughs> to everyone. But I think what it did do was it made me realize sometimes that you can get yourself very whipped up and very angry and very upset, as I was rightly about the injustice of these documents,
1: hmm. but
2: also many different things matter, including family including friends and I I think I learned a lesson about what you put your energy to and how you can make decisions that it matters but it can't take over your life and also that you won't be able to control the outcome for three years as I was going backwards and forwards and fighting this I imagined either this massive loss which would be an outrage or I imagined this massive win which would be a total vindication Mm. And actually what happened with either, they just sort of went, yeah, all right. And it made you realize that you just can't control the outcomes of everything. And for school leaders and as teachers, this happens to us all the time where we work and work and work with the kid for ages. And we think we're going to see some big result and then suddenly they move or they, you know, they don't turn up one day because their family's gone. Mm. And it's just a really good reminder that you can only do the best in the moment and never get too focused on where you think the outcome will be because you just don't know. And also don't give up any time with your loved ones, because when this is all over, they may not be there.
0: That's um, really powerful. Can I ask then about your work with Schools Week and how did you get approached initially and start your, your work with them?
2: Uh, it was all Nick Limford through Twitter. So Nick Limford is the editor of uh, FE Week. And okay. he uh, co owns the publication company that run FE Week. And he got onto Twitter and said, I hear you're coming back from your Fulbright scholarship. Um, have you got a job? And would you like to come and join FE Week? I thought he was completely crazy because I, although I had attended an FE college, I didn't know very much about FE. I hadn't taught in FE, but he seemed very, very intent on getting me to come to work for FE week, wanted to meet with me, did various Skype conversations with him. And I was weighing up whether I wanted to take this job at FE week for quite a long time, amongst a number of other options. And eventually I had decided I was going to phone him and say I didn't want the job. And the day before I did that, so I was going to phone in Monday morning, on the Sunday night, I get a phone call from uh, him, I believe, if not his co-founder Shane, but I think it was Nick, telling me that actually the next day in the newspaper, they were, they were going to release that they were going to be bringing out Schools Week. And he didn't want me for FE Week. He actually wanted me to be then the deputy editor for Schools Week, this brand new magazine. And that Threw a spanner in the works because I'd spent weeks trying to work out what the best option for a job was, and I'd really settled on my decision, and it threw me for a loop. So I remember yeah, going. What had you
0: settled
2: on? Uh, oh, at the time, I think I was going to go and work, and um, funnily enough, probably do something with Becky Allen around data, which I've now come back to. But, yeah. but I was talking to Becky at the time. <laughs> I went and spoke to several of my friends, and they said, Look, "You have to take this opportunity. You have to." And so I that's what I went and did and became the deputy editor of of what was Academy's Week. And after 13 weeks, Nick, who was editing it, decided he wanted to go back and carry on with FE Week. And so I stepped up to become the editor of what then became Schools Week.
0: Goodness. How much was that you in your element or how much was it you out of your comfort zone? Because you were very high on a, a new paper very quickly, weren't you?
2: Oh, uh, uh, unbelievably out of my depth. I mean, I'd done what? I'd done some columns for The Guardian for, for about 18 months by this point, but I hadn't ever done news reporting. I have no NCTGA. Are you NCTJ trained? Yes. <laughs> and Yeah, so you'll know, right? The difference, I would say, between the, the big difference between being a columnist and an education re- a reporter. And it's a bit like the difference between being a teacher and someone who turns up and gives assemblies to kids. Mm. <laughs> you know, though, being a columnist, tipping up once once a month with an opinion, that's, that's hard to do. It's a particular skill, but it's not the same as being there day in, day out. Following the law, understanding the compliance, phoning everybody, checking every single fact, making sure every single word is as accurate as you can make it. And I know that people get angry at education journalists. I was one of those people for a long time as well. We don't always report on things perfectly, but. Being in the newsroom and seeing how hard people work, how methodical they are, how many different stories they're having to deal with at any given time, often on topics that they've never had to deal with themselves. And you realize what an unbelievable skill and craft journalism is. And there I was, some Johnny-come-lately, tipped up as deputy editor, and in 12, 13 weeks was suddenly the editor. And I was very aware of the fact that I didn't understand or know what those guys on the ground were doing. So I did start doing the NCTJs, distance learning, have sat some of my exams and even passed some of them uh, (laughs) while I was editing. I didn't take my shorthand. I held on. um, And I'll never take it now because they've got rid of it.
0: Oh, I don't think I would if I could go back. Um, But it's funny to me that you were taking those while you were an editor.
2: It was funny Uh... to everybody. I I was tweeting about learning shorthand and I think journalists from other education establishments be that the national newspaper or other education newspapers found it absolutely hilarious but you know I did take it it seriously and and there's also a benefit in not being able to jump in and take over from your junior staff I have a bit of a tendency sometimes to to Mm. want to you know, try and do things as well as possible and therefore bring my expertise to it. You know what? They knew what they were doing. I couldn't jump in. And it meant I had to take more of a strategic overview. And that was good for me and good for the paper ultimately.
0: Mm, yeah, really interesting um, way to look at it. Let's come forward now to today. Your work with Teacher Tat. you tell us a little bit about how that was born?
2: Sure. Professor Becky Allen and I have been friends since 2012 when I attended many years ago as a teacher a meeting of Teach First strategy group, which at the time, bear in mind, so I've done six years of teaching and I get invited to this strategy meeting, I think because I was one of the teachers that taught closest to the building in which it was taking place. And I get there and there's people like Michael Barber, Andrew Adonis, Julia Cleverden, Brett Wigdortz, these big education policy names. And throughout this meeting, they are texting government advisors. And I'm just like, this is crazy. I don't even know why I'm here. I'm just some random teacher. And every now and then they would ask for a teacher's opinion and I would pipe up. And next to me, there was an empty seat. About an hour into the meeting, this woman rushes in and sits down and says, I'm really sorry, my boss is sick and I've been sent in his place. Her boss was Chris Husbands, who's now the vice chancellor of Sheffield University, but at the time was the head of the Institute of Education. And she turns to me, this woman, and says, oh my God, these people here are amazing. (laughs) What am I doing here? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm just a teacher. I don't know what I'm doing here either. And of course, it would turn out to be Becky, Mm. who at the time was an academic at the Institute of Education working under Chris Husband's and hadn't yet gone on to start uh, FFT's education data lab, which she subsequently did. And we worked very closely when she was there because Schools Week used a lot of the data for our stories i was very interested from the beginning in making sure that all of our stories were very well evidenced and now that happens right across education journalism but it was reasonably unusual at the time in 2014 when the paper started so we've always been in touch we've always had loads of ideas about education becky's like a one woman education ideas machine and a couple of years ago she was asked by nesta the government's innovation funding unit whether she had any ideas that they could fund for some technology that would help in education. Mm. She'd long had problems about surveying teachers particularly trainee teachers. And she'd always thought that maybe you could do something on people's phones, some kind of text survey. But the technology wasn't really there and the return rates still weren't very good. But in 2017, when they asked, we were far enough into the smartphone change that teachers now had smartphones. And it seemed to us that we could probably do something where you could survey teachers once a day on their phones, particularly trainee teachers. I don't remember when we were chatting about this, but I said to her, do you know what, don't do it for just trainee teachers, do it for everybody because then I can use it for my stories. I write these editorials every week saying teachers believe X. I don't know, maybe they're not, maybe I'm just making it up. So if we could survey everyone, that will help me. And she said, well, that's great, but you have to help me build it because I've got to set up a company to put this funding into and I've not done that before. And that's how two years ago we registered TeachTap and then six days later... I was in hospital and nearly died from an infection, a kidney infection that I didn't even know I had. And I got sepsis and was critically ill. That then took me out of work for about six or seven weeks where I was laid pretty much flat out, unable to do very much. And I suppose between the two of us, we started thinking about how we were going to launch TeachTap, how it would work. And I could really see the potential. And so by September 2017, when we actually launched it, I think we knew that it was going to be something that could be Quite powerful, and that's why shortly after that, I decided to take a step away from full-time editing Schools Week and really see if we could make Teach Tap work.
0: And that's what you're doing today.
2: Yeah, and it's working. Over four thousand teachers now each day, pretty much, on their answering surveys.
0: It's wonderful. Uh, the first time I came across it, I thought, Why didn't I have this idea? Which is always what I have when I'm watching Dragon's Den. The best ideas, I think, I could have thought of that. This is so simple. But of course, it's not at all simple um, to come up with it. You obviously put a lot of thought into uh, how you're going to manage to, to get all this information because you know very well with how busy teachers are you've got to make it somehow accessible and interesting enough. And I think you've done it very cleverly with making it so bite-sized, you know, the quick questions, and also then being able to see the results from yesterday. I'm always really keen to see those results. As I'm answering the questions, I'm almost, okay, but I want to see the results. And I also really love the bite-sized blog that you then get every time. And I love how it's literally to like the half a minute tells you how long it should take you to read it. I just think it's really well thought through and I, and I can only see it getting bigger and better for what it's worth.
2: No, that's worth so much. Thank you. I mean, that's everything you've just said there is everything that we hope on a day to day basis that it will do. You know, it's teachers like yourself who are motivated to read it, take part, find the results interesting, find the blogs interesting, that that makes it worthwhile. That's why we get up in the morning to do it. And I'd love to say it was all really well rational, you know, and thought out to the deepest degree. Some of these things were accidents, For example, the blogs on the final page were because we had an extra page that was for something else originally and didn't really know what to do with it. And with a few weeks to go before launch, we had to stick something on that page. Again, Becky, because she's the one with the great ideas, came up with the idea of putting a blog on there. We trialed that with a focus group and they were incredibly negative about it. They didn't think it would work at all. They were very worried about quality control. There weren't enough blogs in the world for us to put in there. And yet it's become a thing that around a third of our users are absolutely dedicated to. It's the reason why they're on the app. Mm. So there's a lesson there about focus groups (laughs) and the fact that people's behavior is often more important than what people will say. Yes. And also that sometimes... Those little accidents—you've—you've you've got to get on and make things. Sometimes it was seventy percent teach TeachTap when we started it. We're always iterating it. I'm never sure it's hundred percent, but I'm so glad that what we did do was pan and say, "Oh no, we've got this this last page, so we have to hold off or we have to delay." Mm. We just thought we'll do the best we can and we'll get on with it and we'll figure out what people like as we go along.
0: It's that growth mindset, isn't it? Which is the thing that stands out to me already as we talk.
2: I've been very fortunate my whole life to be surrounded by great people who tell me to go for stuff. And if it doesn't work out, they'd back me up. So Mm. from the very beginning, I've got a family that are just like weirdly supportive whatever I had wanted to do you know if I'd have said that I wanted to stay in witness and be a hairdresser if I'd have said I wanted to be an astronaut and go to the moon or I wanted to run an app or be a journalist you know my parents came to my court case and stood at the door greeting the department for education civil servants and telling them that they were my parents so I've got that I think all along as well, the story is really of people giving me shots and mm. taking a bit of a punt on me, even down to, I went to Oxford university from an F E college. She's a really unusual route. And even there I had tutors that went, Oh, you know, I didn't quite get what they were expecting on my exam. When I turned up, she's not got quite the right A levels, but we can see something in her and we'll give her a shot. And the same with Becky saying to me, come and help me t- to do this. And So I think there is something about growth mindset, but I I think it came Mm. from a series of of brilliant people around me who supported me to have that growth mindset and they carry on doing so. Mm. And I want to try as hard as I can always with my colleagues and the people and the work that I do and the blogs that I write to give other people that growth mindset as well. I try never to write, for example, a Guardian column in which I just slag things off and then I don't try and come up with a solution. Mm. Even if it's crazy, even if I don't think any politician will do it, I always try and come up with some way that we can reimagine the world better at the end of those things just so that we all remember we can do things differently in the future
0: and that segues beautifully into the crux of our show
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah perfect you've done that great teacher thing there as well of making sure that all of the questions flow exactly right so the thing I say brings the next uh, activity in well done I'm
0: impressed not (laughs) at all an accident (laughs)
2: <laughs> um, sure. So I've picked three things for Classroom 101. Do you want me to just rattle through what the three things are? Or are we taking them one by one?
0: Let's go one by one.
2: So the first one is open plan schools. So these are schools which don't have walls between the classroom. Becky once asked me a question, which was, what is it from your childhood that you bring as a prejudice now into education, which no matter what the evidence told you, you would hold on to as an absolute hatred or love. Yeah. And for me, it's open plan schools because I went to an open plan primary school and I look back and I just think it was stupid. I think it's a really stupid idea. I mean, the class, it doesn't exist anymore. They've put walls up now and it was so noisy I do think my powers of focus, especially in newsrooms, come from having gone to an open plan school. But whoever thought the idea of putting hundreds of children in essentially one room and letting them roam free while trying to learn loads of different things was, it was just bonkers.
0: They do still exist, though, right?
2: Oh, yeah. And my, my primary school was open plan until not that
0: long ago. Mm. Let's take the example of, say, an open plan reception where you've effectively got two reception classes open plan together. What do you see as the plus or minus of that?
2: I think it's about, for me, noise control. And this actually comes down to silly things as well, like whether or not classrooms have carpets and carpet areas, and why in reception, for instance, you're going to have an area where you don't have carpet, because you're going to have water and sand and so on. But you should also have a carpeted area, I think, for sitting down and doing reading, not just because it's comfortable for children, frankly, they don't really care when they're four and five, but it's more about the sound and the noise. And they did have curtains that had pulled across in my open plan school. The problem is, though, we also as an open plan school were often given class sizes that were very large. So, for instance, I ended up in year three or four with a class of size 42. And because we were open plan, we could expand out and out forever. And I spent a lot of that year sitting really far away from an NQT who we probably gave a nervous breakdown to by the end. So I, I'm not necessarily saying you shouldn't have any open areas or that parts of schools don't need open areas. But I do think there is something about an area where you can close a door with a carpet where then it can be quiet for reading and reflection which really matters and particularly if we have two or three classrooms connected together if what happens is we inflate the class sizes when convenient we can end up doing some damage and class size is another one where I really don't care about the evidence I know that makes me a horrible (laughs) person and I argue this all the time against people with grammar schools but until you have been in a class of 42 as a seven year old you really don't understand
0: Mm, okay that's interesting there's evidence that it doesn't really make a lot of difference until maybe you get down to a certain a certain number but your instincts and your experience tells you differently I'm
2: sure it doesn't make any difference to outcomes because I still did really well at school right and I don't think my I don't think it affected me in the slightest because they very smartly put the one of the brightest kids in the year group at the far end of the room Right? That was a sensible bet to make. (laughs) Do I think I had a worse school experience? Yes. Do I think there were other kids who weren't quite as able and probably became demotivated by school? Yes. And I think that can have long term consequences for what they're interested in, what they go on and do, and how they feel about themselves and schools, which may not come out in outcomes, but will come out somewhere in their lives.
0: Mm. Okay. So, open plan schools, first to go into classroom 101. Uh, Let's move on to your second item.
2: The second one is the idea that free schools, which were my specialism at the time, um, are somehow really special. And this was a huge, huge line pushed by Michael Gove in the early 2010s when free schools were coming out as though somehow new schools are magical entities that will always be perfect and will work. And of course, new schools become old schools really quickly. And schools are just schools. I really, I'm not bothered whether you're an, I quite like the academy system, but academies, schools, whatever else. The fact is, it's a very, very complicated organizational thing to take hundreds of children and lots of adults and every day, stick them in rooms and make it work. Mm. And the beginning of a book I wrote in 2010 about free schools starts with the line, if 50% of marriages end in divorce and 90% of businesses fail, why do we think that free schools will be any different?
0: <laughs> wow. <laughs> what a question. You know, and take but-
2: marriages. That's, just, that's just, two, it's just two people. And um, all they've got to do is get along forever. Right? Yeah. That's it. <laughs> yeah. And it's really, really hard. Yeah. So ultimately, when we're asking hundreds of people, all to work in combination in what is quite a complicated organisation. There's a very high chance of, of failure at any time. And it's a miracle to me that so many free schools do well. And in fact, so many of any schools do well every single day.
0: Some people might say, don't free schools come out a little bit better than an average school in terms of Ofsted gradings?
2: They come out with better and worse, or they did. I've not looked at the most recent figures, but up until about 18 months ago, they were more likely to be outstanding and they right. were more likely to be inadequate. That would make sense. Any new endeavor is inherently risky. Now, right. why people are always attracted to opening free schools is they get to set the systems and processes, they get to set the rules. Right. And as a head teacher in particular, that's incredibly attractive because you don't have to go in and clean up somebody else's mess. It's why there's a premium on new cars, it's why there's a premium on new houses. But note that that premium Premium depreciates.
1: As soon as
2: you drive that car away, you're going to lose around 25% of value over the first two years. The same on houses. They reckon it's a 16% premium. And it's exactly the same for free schools, even if they're special, even if they're special for a year, for two years. The fact is, in one year's time, that school is no longer a new school. And as Hmm. soon as it's got to replace staff, as soon as it's got to move buildings, as soon as it's got to change its pan numbers, as soon as it's got to change a policy, they are into the same issue. So we give a false promise and a false illusion when we say that newness gives you something. Hmm. It gives you a premium for a short period of time.
0: I may be wrong about this, but did you not uh, interview Toby Young once?
2: Yes. Yes.
0: (laughs) Okay. because I'm sure I remember you writing about this. Tell me (laughs) what you learned from that and if if your opinion in any way changed after speaking to him.
2: What (laughs) happened in that interview is that I think actually it was one of the few times where I have seen him be very, very honest, very, very direct and actually very humble. And he came out and said in 2010, when I was shooting my mouth off about all these schools and them being rubbish, I had no idea. And now I do. And I regret deeply. The things that I said about teachers back in 2010, because frankly, schools are an iceberg. And I was looking at the top without any understanding of the 35 feet of ice that sits underneath. And I thought that was really an important lesson from him. But it's true. As school leaders and as teachers, we are constantly looked at by people who think they know what they see they think they understand schools and actually this is a really very difficult job
0: is there anything that you would change regarding free schools
2: yeah they just should have been more honest about it we just right. needed a clear process and system we didn't know why some schools were getting picked and which ones weren't no one systematically looked at which ones succeeded and which ones failed and and that's a shame you know 10 years billions and billions of pounds on something from which we've learnt what? All the learning that we lost because they wouldn't be open about those documents, which I now have some of. It's not about shaming people, even as a journalist. I was never interested in this thing that some journalists get into of I want to make people lose their jobs or yeah, slam it to the man. I've never been interested in that. It's about learning. What mm. did we learn? You know, if this person went wrong, I don't want to castigate them, but we do need to understand how and why we got to the point where things went wrong. And I deeply regret in my first few weeks, we did get an offset inspector fired because he was copying and pasting parts of reports for several years into different reports. Right. And what I, I realized the day I went home was we've just scapegoated one person, but actually there's a bigger question here. How the heck did this happen? Why was he copying and pasting? Why did he feel it was okay? Why did a newspaper discover this and not Ofsted themselves? And there were all kinds of issues around the way inspections were being quality controlled and who was doing them. And they'd been outsourced at the time. And actually, we missed all of that we missed it and that was wrong we shouldn't have missed that so I think for me with the free schools we have to remember transparency is what helps us learn even when it's difficult and we've got to get on and do it and that comes back and haunts me all the time now when I'm doing things myself and we make mistakes and I have to be honest and I don't want to be but you know that's the (laughs) principles I believe in in the end.
0: On a tangent have you read Black Box Thinking by Matthew Syed by any chance? I
2: haven't no I've seen him speak a few times about it. All
0: right um, he just he writes in, in a really interesting way about this, this same kind of principle of we need to get the most learning that we can out of every single endeavor. He talks about the industries that do it best and he includes um, the aviation industry and about how they learn from those mistakes. But he talks then about some institutions, including uh, health industry, that don't uh, utilize or, or didn't. It's improving that, the information of their mistakes so they can learn.
2: Yeah, And that's. I wrote this book, The Six Predictable Failures of Free Schools, right at the beginning of the free school movement. And I based that on the work of an academic called Seymour Saracen, who had studied charter schools in America for 25 years. And so I got a lot right in that book. And people look back and go, wow, how did you get it so right? Well, I looked. I went and looked at what he had said. So he, he's smart enough to know. I also looked at plane failures. Um, I looked at a whole raft of different things. There's an amazing book called Great Planning uh, Disasters or Great Planning Failures by Peter Hall. And that looks at things like uh, why airports in Britain take so long to build and often when we've built them, they've been in the wrong place. Why the Sydney Opera House was actually hated for such a long time and then eventually was beloved. And, And, you know, none of this is new stuff. Right. In education, we convince ourselves all the time that we're special and no one has ever faced problems like we have. And not only have they faced them in education, if you go back historically, but also they face them in almost every other industry. So there's just tons and tons that we can learn.
0: Would you agree that the people that should be doing this thorough checking are the, are the government, the people that are going to introduce this? It's, it's rushed through and it's not thought through properly. And people like you are having to do this thinking that should be them.
2: Yeah, that's exactly what happened. And I mean, his advisors now would, would admit that. Sam Friedman, who was formerly Michael Gove's advisor, I think, admits that. But they also didn't know it was a coalition. They didn't know how long they would last. So they just ran as quickly as they could. Again, there is a lesson. Mm. You know, if you do that, you will get your change, but it won't necessarily be the change that you want.
0: We could go into a much wider issue about the political system. and <laughs> how, If we change governments every five years, then, you know, policies with it, how, how is education ever going to get better without a much longer term thought process? But that's probably a conversation for another day.
2: Also, the answer is you, right? Like the reason it gets better is because of you and the other teachers who are in the classroom way longer than these guys. You're gonna, you're gonna see so many education secretaries over a career. So whatever, they're ephemeral. They're slightly important. There are some systemic issues, but by and large, they're not that important. And we should never ever believe that education secretaries are making education happen. Every day, the teachers who go into the classroom make it happen. That's all that matters. It's just, it's just how we, we just all have to manage up. That's what I see my job as. We just manage up the way and make sure they don't do anything too crazy and the rest of us get on with the real job.
0: Manage up. I like that a lot. Let's move on then to your your final item that you're throwing into Classroom 101.
2: Oh, it's the EBAC, the English Baccalaureate, which I know you're a primary teacher, Andy, so um, it doesn't matter quite so much for
0: you guys. Yeah. And and there will be many listeners from the primary sector. So would you mind just firstly running down what, what the EBAC is?
2: Yeah so the English baccalaureate as a collection of subjects which the government have said are more important than other subjects and therefore children ought to do a combination of these subjects for GCSE. There's no certificate that kids get for this. Uh, there's no qualification. It was originally sort of supposed to be just one performance metric. Now it's become a big part of the performance metric, and it's also becoming part of Ofsted. And the subjects that are included are English, maths, and science, which isn't particularly controversial, but then modern foreign languages and history or geography. Mm. And computing science is put in as a science. So mm. that goes in as a science as well. So essentially we have English, math, science, modern foreign languages, history or geography. Mm. and I think this does some really problematic things because it sets up a false and unfair system in which modern foreign languages and uh, history and geography have been selected for no reason that I have yet seen or found. And no matter what has come at us for nine years, um, people have never kind of proven it to be true. And the one saving grace that the government always had was that coincidentally, four weeks after the English Baccalaureate was announced by Michael Gove, Four weeks later, the Russell Group universities coincidentally come out and say that these exact subjects are called the facilitating subjects and they get you into university at higher rates or are preferred with zero evidence that they have ever been able to bring up in the last nine years. And of course, a few weeks ago, the Russell Group came out and said, we're actually removing this label of facilitating subjects and it's no longer, um, we're no longer sort of standing by it.
0: Wow, that's really interesting because even I, and I know very little about um, the EBAC and the history of it, um, even I've heard of that, um, the, what the Russell group was saying. And yeah. I thought the whole premise of this beginning was, was that that research. And you're saying, well, it came out a month later and it's not really been proven.
2: Yes, it was, okay. it was, all, it was all very coincidental. Um, actually, the, the particular combination of subjects was put in a government report, in a, uh, sorry, in a think tank report in 2009. When Michael Gove brought the E-back out in September 2010, he announced it on the Andrew Marr show. Over the following weeks, the subjects actually changed slightly, yes. which suggests that there, is, there was some negotiation to be done and then we end up with this particular group for which there has never been any great rationale frankly other than universities were very worried about the dip in modern foreign language numbers because labor had got rid of it as being compulsory and instead put it into primary school mm-hmm. and um most politicians like history but they knew they couldn't get away with sticking history in so they made a history of geography <laughs> Boom done
0: (laughs) right okay and I'd Uh, love
2: to tell you that that's not how government policy is made but that is literally how government policy is made
0: (laughs) now that so the English Baccalaureate when would you say that that is doing a massive um disservice to to the arts and the foundation subjects other than history geography
2: I do think that the arts have been somewhat nudged out in an unhelpful way and unhelpful for our children because actually at school for instance I had to do a technology GCSE I went to a comprehensive at the time and that was all very cool and it was rubbish it's my lowest my lowest grade I got a B in food technology I thought it was a complete waste of time in lots of ways on the other hand once a week going to a subject where I was not the best kid at it where actually lots of other kids got to shine and I got to understand and value other skills that I didn't have.
1: Mm. I
2: think that's just psychologically important for children that we don't just say there are five things that matter in the world, English, math, science, history or geography and MFL. We say to them, being good at these other things is also equally valid. I think we either have to take one of two approaches in secondary schools. We either say it's just English, math, science or better approach would be to say everybody does have to do yes a humanity but let's make it a broader humanity let's put re in there i still don't understand why citizenship was dropped out of there um everyone has to do a modern foreign language but also then everyone has to do either a art subject or a technology subject just to, to broaden and balance this out. Right. And that way everything sits within something more like the international baccalaureate approach in which there is more rounded education. I don't right. think it's important for kids to specialize by 16.
0: No. Okay.
2: I don't think it matters that much. I'm, I'm in these times, this is quite a controversial, but I'm a bit of a curriculum skeptic. I think that there is There is some stuff that's really foundational and really important. I think the national curriculum up to 14 is actually pretty good and pretty Mm -hmm. solid. I think we did a really good job as a country on that. But I also am kind of like, well, if kids learn the Great Fire of London or they they learn about the Romans, I don't think it matters that much. Uh, I think in lots of other ways, yeah, if you do... GCSE music, or you do an extra MFL, does it matter? I'm not sure it does, really. I just think the idea that some knowledge is like inherently more powerful than other knowledge is a bit weird. I always remember Kate Adie talking about the fact that the, the famous journalist mm. saw her many years ago as a teacher, talking about the fact that she flunked her A-levels, so she couldn't get to uni, but she had well-connected families. They rang up York Uni and said, what, what can we get her in to do? And she did, I think it's called Nordic Studies, at York University and she ended up learning Swedish which as she said is probably a fairly pointless language to learn however when she was in uh, a few hairy situations in the UN uh, in war zones the UN peacekeepers turned up and they spoke Swedish because most of the UN peacekeepers are in fact Swedish and she managed to get herself out of a life and death situation because she spoke Swedish Now, is Swedish powerful knowledge? Well, no, unless you're in a war zone and the UN peacekeepers who can save you speak Swedish. And so that's why I get a bit a bit stressed out about the idea that some knowledge is way more powerful than others I think all knowledge is powerful we don't necessarily know when it's going to be powerful and a bit like we can't educate kids for jobs in the future because we don't know what's coming so we've just got to do the best with what we do right now I mm. think with knowledge as long as we're being sensible and roughly within the national curriculum we'll probably teach them a bunch of stuff and it will be good
0: mm. okay thank you hi there thanks for taking the time to listen to the show this is a quick plea because the aim of Classroom 101 is to share ideas and wisdom in education. So if you're enjoying what you hear from Laura, be really grateful if you could like the show by clicking subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're using and share the show with someone, whether verbally or via social media. You can tweet the show at classroom101pod, me at andyvt101 and Laura at miss underscore McInerney. Thanks to the many of you who've liked, shared and commented on our last episode featuring Lee Parkinson, including Mrs B, Omar Akbar and Neil Black, to name but a few. Now, we finish each episode with three quick questions to get to know our guests a little better. So, let's get back to the show. Okay, so, the first question that we have is, what was the strangest thing you believed as a child?
2: Um, I believed, for some reason that I still don't fathom, that my auntie, was a trapeze artist in the circus. Uh, she actually worked in the TSB bank in Witness. <laughs> so I've got no idea where this came from. But for years, I thought this. And over the years, like whenever people would talk about her being in the bank, I'd be so confused as to, I'd be like, okay, well, she must just do this in the nighttime. Then she'd come to night events. I'd be like, why isn't she in the circus? So I no did.
0: Were you telling friends at school about this? And your interesting answer? you did a great job.
2: Yeah, I don't remember, but I probably did. And there's definitely some point where I obviously was like, wait, why isn't Auntie Susan at the circus? And then... And then everyone's like, cause she works in a bank. And I don't think I made a big deal out of it. I think I just very quietly let it go. <laughs> but it's one of the reasons, again, like with teacher tap, one of the loveliest things is that you get to check whether or not what you think is correct. You yes. know, it's a, it's a good, it's a good tool for you think you're very, very certain about how everybody thinks on, on a topic, but actually you <laughs> learn the next day. Oh my goodness. 10% of teachers think like me. And that can stop you with your, uh, your weird circus beliefs.
0: who was your favorite teacher growing up
2: uh so my my favorite teacher growing up is miss Watson and I have written about her before I had loads of good teachers to be fair so there Mm. was there was a, a whole crowd I could mention but miss Watson was my form tutor from year nine and I was in that nightmare form at secondary school the one that no one wants because they just rampaged the whole time we'd gone through teachers we kept making them cry and then Miss Watson took us on, and she it, she just took us all in, and she was like, "Good morning, nine C. Well, I hear you 're the nightmare form you 're not going to be the nightmare form for very long and uh, she just absolutely slammed it to us, and she was about four foot tall, massive glasses, and she taught me French, which I loathed, and she didn't make me love French, she just made me get an A star anyway. She just bullied me into getting French, but in the most beautiful, brilliant way, and she just made you feel as if you, did, you knew every moment when you went into her classroom, you were going to be safe. You were going to learn something. She did games, but they were always learning games. Everything was functional. And um, she went at me for years about wearing my Walkman. But she just like just this constant fight over my Walkman. And she just never let it go. But her behavior management was always ruthless, but fair. And you knew that she really cared about you. And when I had some teenage moments, you know, sort of split up with boyfriends and things, I remember going in one morning and putting all the chairs down and I was sad. And I was like, I've with my boyfriend. And she was like, oh, no, help me put the worksheets out. <laughs> I helped her and she just gave me jobs to do. And she knew as a teenager I wouldn't want to talk about it. So she just made sure I felt safe and happy and confident. And she was just brilliant.
0: She sounds wonderful. How, how, how did the routine work of, of going into her lesson? Was it go in, put your Walkman on her desk and...
2: Um, so we used to have two lines on either side, which was girls and boys. And I was always friends with the boys. So I would I would wait at the back of the boys queue with my friends. And if the boys went in first, she'd then send me to the back of the girls queue. Of course, if the girls had already gone in and I came up the back of the boys queue, I would just sort of smile and she would let it go. But then it would be Walkman off, take the Walkman, put it away. If she saw it again, she would take it off me. And I remember my friend Emma always wore nail varnish. And every morning, Miss Watson would go to the stock cupboard. She would take out this nail varnish bottle and remove the bottle and put it down with some cotton wool buds. And Emma would sit there in form, taking the nail varnish off. And over the weeks, this happened every morning. Nail varnish back on, take the nail varnish off. Nail varnish back on, take the nail varnish off. Until one morning, Emma triumphantly puts the nail varnish remover down and goes, it's finished. And wow. I swear it was in one move. Like there was... It was like a ballet. Miss Watson walked across the classroom, op- picked up the remover bottle, threw it in a bin, with one arm opened a cupboard door, picked up another full bottle of nail varnish remover, slung it down on front of the desk with Emma and slinked away.
0: That is comic.
2: And Emma never wore nail varnish again after that. And okay. I, when I was dealing with really difficult teenagers when I was teaching in East London, I used to think about my nail varnish remover moment. Like, right. what is the thing you can do where they know you're never going to give in. Mm. Like They think they're going to win, but you will be here year after year after year. And if it takes hundreds of bottles of nail varnish remover, you will get hundreds of bottles of nail varnish remover. Mm. Because I think in the end that that will of, this is my classroom and my rules and I love you, but we are going to do it my way is what really matters. The first thing she made us do was in our form time. She made each of us give a presentation for two minutes where we had to talk about something that mattered to us. Hmm. And I remember thinking, we're going to kill each other. Like we won't listen. We won't, you know, and she just absolutely reinforced every morning, two kids had to do it for months until we got this. And she absolutely reinforced this idea of listening to each other. We did not begin. She would stop anybody until we were absolutely silent. And they were so dull, these speeches, but we had to do it. I did mine about Terry Pratchett. And a few weeks later, I remember her bringing me, which I still have a Terry Pratchett article from a newspaper. Oh, wow. And saying, I saw this and thought of you. And so she found a way to work out what was important for all of us. And mm. she gave a little speech in which she played music of Queen and she said, these guys are important to me. I love their music. And so we would then talk to her about Queen.
0: Thank you very much. If you could have three guests to a dinner party, who would they be?
2: Um. So... I, I'm struggling with this because a lot of the time I want to go for people whose writing I absolutely love. So authors like Michael Crichton, where I watched ER and I'm obsessed with Jurassic Park. And, mm. But I feel like with writers, you kind of know them already because I've already got to read lots about them. And so I, I've come up with Carol Chapek is my absolute favorite writer. He was a Czech essayist and playwright in the 1920s through 1940s and his book is called Believe in People, his collected essays and it's really about this idea of humanity, believing in people, giving the benefit of the doubt and how we support each other and he was way ahead of his time. He was talking about how hanging poor women who were stealing bread for their children was just cruel. He, you can see him getting ahead actually just before he dies, just before the Second World War but um, you can see him getting ahead of that and talking about the idea that if you spent, if German people spent time with other people and if other people spent time with German people, they they wouldn't hate each other. You mm. know, this was all going crazy for no good reason. And I, I love him deeply. I would love to have met him. Mm. And then I've, I think the other two would be uh, Cleopatra and Cassandra. Cleopatra being from the ancient Egyptians and Cassandra is from Greek mythology, but I'm going to presume she's real. So we're going to have some kind of incarnation of her. Cassandra was famous for always telling people how things were going to go wrong or what was going to happen next, but nobody would listen to her. And I felt like this all through that early years of the free Mm -hmm. schools program, certain things, academies program. And it's the same with Carol Chapek, right? Like he's saying, come on guys, like do the right things. And yet the forces of power and circumstance are against him. And then Cleopatra is one of the unusual people where she does manage actually to be quite savvy and she does manage to get whole countries and armies to do what she wants but she kind of has to give up some principles along the way to do that and so i'd have two people who are my heroes of seeing things correctly but not getting people to change and then one who's my hero of getting people to do things but what did she what did she learn that we didn't and what might they understand mm. or recognize now that their lives have finished if they could look back would they do differently would they learn from there and so i feel like i'd be the ultimate learning experience
0: Oh, it sounds like it would. If you do, you want to
2: come? I'll let you in. You, can, would... you can have an extra seat if you want. I'd
0: love to. I feel like I don't quite deserve a seat at that table, to be honest. You've aimed 12... well. It was
2: your question, so <laughs>
0: I suppose because it's my question, maybe if you were going to ask each of them a question, what would you ask? them?
2: I think the stories we tell ourselves, especially in difficult moments, and especially when we're up against it and up against people's expectations, are really important. Yes. And that's what I would want to learn from them. What the stories are that kept them going in the moments when Chapette was facing arrest or Cassandra was, was just having everybody laugh at her the whole time. What kept them going?
0: Gosh, thank you. I'd love to finish with just hearing a little bit about what you're doing now with TeachTap. Can you tell us a bit about what you and Becky have set up and where you're up to? Yeah.
2: So TeachTap is this free app that thousands of teachers have on their phone. About 4,000 a day use it, but many more use it on and off. We don't mind if people want to use it every now and then. So it's worth downloading. If you hate it, delete it. Use it intermittently or use it every day. And it will just ask you three questions, which should get you thinking about your teaching that day. Or it might ask you where you had your lunch. Do you have a best friend? Last year, we asked lots about, did you watch the World Cup? There's all kinds of interesting things. And we do that in, in the view that, if we can collectively work out what's going on on the ground, it means that education policymakers have a better view of what's happening in the classroom. Academics can do better theories. We can do better research. And also we work with education businesses to try and get them making better products and services, because very often they just don't know what goes on in the classroom. So one of the reasons why tech products just haven't worked that well in some instances is because people didn't realize that actually your computer takes 10 minutes to load up or you don't always have one to one devices.
1: Mm. and.
2: At the end of the questions for the teachers on the app, they answer the three of them and then you get to see the results. Perfect. You get to learn something every day Mm -hmm. and you get to see, as you mentioned, the daily tip, which is a link to a blog. We'll tell you how long it takes to read, sometimes one minute, sometimes 10 minutes, usually around three or four minutes. And then that way you can get to improve your teaching practice every day. And the point of Teacher Tap is just imagine a world where for one minute every day, teachers answer some questions which adds to this huge body of knowledge that we've never had before they read something about how to get better that's it mm. like that's just super powerful everybody learning every day for one to two minutes and we'll all get better we have to over time yeah. it's just brilliant and it was becky's idea not mine but i i, I still that's think it. it's brilliant and that's why I, that's why i work on it every day
0: what plans have you got have you got any any particular plans for the next stage what are you focusing on at the moment
2: Yeah, so um, we've already just started something where teachers are able to see the results of teachers like me and near me. So if you're a primary teacher, you'll be able to look at a little bit more what primary teachers like you think or the 150 nearest teachers, I think it is um, to you. We're also trying to work out what else teachers want. For instance, with the blogs... Is there a way that people might be able to learn more from them? Could we maybe do some retrieval practice with the blogs themselves? These are things that we're talking about all the time in teaching. Should we be doing that with TeachTap? Should teachers Mm. be looking back at blogs? Should they be trying to memorise what was in the blogs? Um, So they're things that we're thinking about next as well.
0: If people want to find your app, TeachTap with two Ps?
2: TeachTap with two Ps is the app that you tap.
0: The app that you tap. Very good. I like that. (laughs) thank you Laura it's been fascinating to talk to you I've really, you. really enjoyed it <laughs>
2: thank you so much Andy no I really appreciate it
1: when education's in pretty bad shape teachers are leaving or planning escape There's not enough time to teach the things you should time to manage education sins you do it if you could time for classroom one one time for